0: He must increase, but I must decrease. Who said those words? Somebody shout it out. John, John the Baptist. John the Baptizer. Right on. All four Gospels, very early on, introduce John. John as the forerunner. John as the one preparing the way for Jesus. Mark chapter 1. Mark, is, is, he starts right off with John. No other gospel begins as quickly with John, but Mark 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared in baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins and all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the River Jordan, confessing their sins. Matthew and Luke, very similarly, not right at the beginning like Mark, but very similarly introduce John, quoting from the same passage in Isaiah. The predominant focus in the first three Gospels is John's ministry is calling people to repent and be baptized Prepare yourselves, get ready, the kingdom of God is at hand, which really means the king is about to show up. The Gospel of John, where we're studying now, also very early introduces John to us. The focus in the Gospel of John is a little different, and that's what we're going to be looking at today. But already, chapter 1, verse 6, and we can start turning there now if you haven't already. Chapter 1, verse 6, already early on, here is John. And what the focus is in this fourth gospel is more on what John was and what John was not. So let's look at first John, or John chapter 1, verses 6 to 8. And let me just forewarn you this morning, we're going to be turning to other parts of the gospel today. So you'll want to have one open because there are extended passages in John we're going to consider as well. If you remember, I have been saying from the outset, I'm not intending this to be a consecutive all the way through John series. I think I would die before I finished, because it would take 15 years or more for me to do this if I did it that way. So anyway, we're going to look at what the gospel of John says about John the Baptist today, starting where he's introduced, chapter 1, verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness, to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light but came to bear witness about the light. And so two things here that we'll focus on this morning. What he was, he was a witness, a witness to the light. John has just finished talking about Jesus as the word and then as the life and the light. And John has come as a witness to this light. So what he was, was a witness. What he was not, he was not the light itself. Verse 8 is very clear he was not the light. So, first let's talk about John as a witness to the light. Very interesting here at the beginning. We look at his identity there in verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. It's very interesting, and this is gonna it's gonna be a little tricky because the writer of this book is John. So I'll try to make sense out of what I'm saying here. But the writer, now the apostle, as he writes, never calls John, this John, John the Baptist. He's called John the Baptist in the other three Gospels. Not every time he's referred to, but sometimes he's distinguished as John the Baptist. This Gospel, Gospel 4, never uses that extra added distinguishing mark, John the Baptist. Now, it's not a huge point, but it is interesting. He does The writer, the Apostle John, does distinguish when he wants to make clear who he's talking about. For example, in John chapter 14, verse 22, he writes, Judas, not Iscariot. He wants to tell you something that a Judas did, wants to make sure that you don't mix this guy up with another famous Judas. In chapter 13, we read about Judas there. I won't read the whole verse, but at the end it says he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. So John the writer, John the apostle, will distinguish in this way when he wants to make clear who he is or is not talking about, but he never distinguishes John the Baptist, he just calls him John. What's interesting about this, and it will tie into what we're looking at today with John the Baptist himself, is the apostle John doesn't need to distinguish this John because he never mentions himself by name. The writer never uses his own name. He describes himself in two ways in this gospel. At the end of the gospel, when Jesus has risen from the dead, they run to see the empty tomb. He talks about Simon or Peter and the other disciple. But then, various places, the last evening they spent together in the upper room, he talks about the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, Some people have sometimes thought about that like, Well, what's what's that, the disciple that Jesus loved? Like he didn't love the others or something? I think, no, no, that's not it at all. I think John was just overwhelmed with the reality that Jesus had loved him. We don't know a lot of detail about John's life, but you know, John is one of the sons of thunder, right? He's one of the ones that say, Lord, you want us to call some lightning down on them in one case? And yet, what is John the Apostle's real reputation? He's the Apostle of love. It's a man transformed as an older, you know, as a man who's walked for decades with his Lord. His heart and life transformed. And I think also this recognition that Jesus loved me. It must have been an overwhelming thought to him at times to, to think, I got to be one of the 12? Me? So he never has to say of John the Baptist that he is John the Baptist because he never names any other John in his gospel. Why is that significant? I think it's significant because it reflects the humility of this apostle. It's not about John the apostle. He doesn't even want to mention his own name. He refers to himself indirectly. And we're going to see something of the same spirit in John the Baptist, he must increase, but I must decrease. We also see in verse 6 the commission. His, His identity, he's John, but his commission, it says there he was sent from God. There was a man sent from God. There's a striking balance here. He was not the light, but he was sent from God. Even though John doesn't want to say a lot necessarily about himself, he was appointed to this. He was called to this. John wasn't just some random guy that showed up at campaign headquarters to volunteer. He didn't just sort of a hanger-on that saw that he liked Jesus' agenda or Jesus' mission and he said, hey, I want to be part of that. Now I'm here. I'll volunteer. I'll help you get this started. No, he was predicting. He was prophesied. He was announced some seven centuries before Jesus ever came. A voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. He was sent from God. So he's clear to make, John the, the Apostle makes it clear about John the Baptist here that he was not the light, but that does not make him nothing. He was God's man for God's purpose at this time. And think about this for ourselves as well. We are not the light. In other words, we can. We can sometimes want focus on ourselves. But the opposite extreme, to just constantly be sort of demeaning ourselves, constantly down on ourselves, constantly I, we're, we're worth nothing, we're unimportant. If we're putting a lot of emphasis there, you can put too much emphasis there. If you're always sounding that note, might begin to wonder if it's just sort of a reverse way of calling attention to yourself. I think the best pathway for us all to strive for is self-forgetfulness. As we point to Jesus, yes, we're unworthy servants, but we don't have to keep banging that drum all the time because we forget about ourselves. We're not the issue. And more and more, we make Jesus the issue. A healthy self-forgetfulness. So what we're saying here is John the Baptist is not the light. But that does not make him nothing. Called by God. You and I are all called by God to something. We're all called and gifted for ministry in his body, in his kingdom, the, 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 the commission that he has given his church. And so don't allow yourself to think of yourself as Nothing. You are God's man or woman for God's purpose. But always keep clear that that purpose is to point to Christ. Well, that is the third point we'll make now about his identity, and that is his purpose. His identity, I'm sorry, that he, who he was. His purpose, his commission, now his, I'm sorry, <laughs> his identity, his commission, and now his purpose. His purpose is to bear witness to the light. And notice something else that's said right there. He's bearing witness to the light for what end? so that all what may believe. Does that ring a bell if you've been with us? John says he wrote this book. Jesus did many signs that are not recorded here, but these are written so that you might believe. This whole book is intended for us to believe. John the Baptist came, and he bore witness to the light so that people Come to know and love Jesus. Witness is another of the key terms in this gospel, another of the key themes in this gospel. We've already looked at believe. We've already looked at life. We've already looked at light. Those are keys. You, you read the whole gospel, you keep coming across those terms. This is another one. Witness is a term that will come up again and again and again in this gospel. There are many witnesses to Jesus. Let's turn to another part of the Gospel of John now. That's why I wanted you to make sure you had yours open. Let's go over to John chapter 5. If you're just new or you're just visiting today, we use the screen a lot for cross-referencing, but sometimes the passages are longer. And if it's convenient, we're in the same book here, not too many pages to turn. We'll just use our Bibles and turn that way. John chapter 5, let's begin at verse 30. If you're carrying an ESV this morning, it probably has a heading there that says, Witnesses to Jesus. And other versions may as well, but I'm using the ESV, English Standard Version. Verse 30 says, Jesus is talking now, he's talking to what John calls, the, this is going to get confusing today, I knew this ahead of time and I was trying to avoid it, the apostle calls the Jews. And you think, well, who in the world, That's, they're all the Jews, aren't they, but... John the Apostle, as he writes, refers to a certain group of people as the Jews. And by that, he typically is referring either to the leadership, the Sanhedrin, or he's talking about the Jewish population in opposition to Jesus. And so Jesus is talking to these leaders now. They've come out, they've been bothered by some of the things he's doing and saying. And here's what Jesus says in response I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. That's going to be important to understanding what Jesus is going to say next. Now, Jesus is very clear. This is not always understood well by us. Because we have a, a, an understanding of who Jesus is, we know he's God. We tend to think, well, he's God, therefore he he had the authority to speak. And therefore, he had the power to do miracles, etc., etc. But yet, if you read the Gospels carefully, you find that Jesus always was acting in submission to the Father, not to do his own will, but to do the will of the Father. Again and again in this Gospel of John, he'll keep saying, what I say, my words are not my own. They're the, I say what my Father has instructed me to say. Here he's saying, I do what my Father has instructed me to do. If you read carefully in the Gospels, incidentally, you'll also find that Jesus doesn't do miracles in, the power of, in his own power as God. He does miracles in the power of the Holy Spirit. Part of the mystery and part of the wonder of his incarnation, his humanity. He lived his humanity in submission to and dependence on and in the power and strength of the Spirit of God. So he says, I can do nothing on my own. I'm not seeking my own will here. Now, that's important. Verse 31 goes on to say, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. He's not saying that my words would be false. What he's saying is, if I were doing this myself, if this was just me, if I had taken the initiative, if I had developed a sense of mission, if I had developed a sense of want to want to bring change and maybe spiritual awakening to my people and I want to be a force used by God and this was my thing that I had developed and I'm out here making these claims you would not have to listen to me, you would not have to believe me. I'm not operating on my own. This is not me alone. I am doing this in submission to my father. And he goes on now to talk about other witnesses. If I bear witness alone to myself, but I don't, verse 32, there is another who bears witness about me. And I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. He's talking there about his father. And then verse 33, we come to the witness we're considering today. You sent to John and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. So you've got already Jesus is talking and testifying to himself, but he says that alone, if that were me, if that were just mine, that wouldn't add up to anything. But it isn't just me, and it isn't just mine alone. It's also the Father, and it's also John, Verse 36, but the testimony that I have is greater than that of John, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. When Jesus was feeding 5,000 people with a boy's lunch, when when Jesus turned water into wine, you remember what it says there? That's chapter 2, that's the wedding at Cana. It says there, that was the first of the signs that Jesus did, and his disciples believed in him. I think probably we should take that, that they started to get the idea, because they struggled. It wasn't settled after that wedding. They kept wondering, and scratching their heads, and getting baffled. At very least, they began to believe. The miracles of Jesus testify to who he was is so you've got jesus talking you've got the father you've got john you've got the miracles there's one other listed here if you drop down a little bit verse 38 well let let me read verse 37 it will flow better this way the father who sent me has himself borne witness about me his voice you have never heard his form you have never seen that his voice you've never heard must mean this particular group was not at his baptism His form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. That's striking. These people are saturated with the Old Testament. They've been raised on it from birth. Their whole culture is permeated with the Hebrew Bible. And yet Jesus says, you don't have it living in you abiding in you, remaining in you, because if it really was there, you would know who I am because that book also bears witness to who I am. Verse 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. One of the things we're going to be discovering in this gospel, we'll say a little bit about it today as well, is belief. Belief is not purely a matter of intellectual convincing. In fact, fundamentally, belief and unbelief at its core lie elsewhere. They lie in the heart issue, the issue of the heart. Jesus is going to go on to talk about this. Verse 41, he says, I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. See, now he's starting to get to the heart of it. You're saturated with Scripture. You're very devout. You keep the law of Moses. You have all of the traditions of the elders and so on. And you consider yourselves to be those who are the people of God. And yet what's really missing in your lives is a genuine love for this God you claim to know and worship. I have come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. You'll receive other people coming in their own name, paraphrasing, but how can you believe, verse 44, when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? See, there's other issues going on here than just, I can't believe that intellectually. The intellectual is real, and I'm not discounting it. The intellectual element of belief is very real. If you were here the last couple of weeks, you would know we talked about some of, some of the, what sometimes is called apologetics. We've talked about some of the philosophic understanding that helps us to understand what this gospel is talking about. It's important. But unbelief at its core is not an intellectual problem. It is a heart problem. It is a spiritual problem problem. There are ample and sufficient witnesses to Jesus. This gospel itself is one of them. I wrote these things so you might believe. The whole Hebrew Bible, he says, bears witness to him. And if you really understood it and you really had it in you and you really had the love of God in you, then you would know who I am. John bore witness as well. And so there is ample testimony to Jesus. One other comment here about sources of unbelief, and then we'll leave it for future studies in this gospel. But this one, I think, helps us to see very clearly right at the heart of unbelief. Chapter three, it'll be on the screen. This is the judgment that light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. The light's shining. And it's not so much necessarily that I can't see the light, it's that I don't want to come to the light. I don't like what the light is doing here. I'd rather put the light out because I want to go on as I am, loving what I love. Everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. Let me just comment for a second here, It's not my main point at all today, but when I, when I, when I see the word wicked, I think you're, you're hearing, I'm not, I'm not wicked. Don't think of it as some gross, horrendous evil that you commit. What is the greatest sin? What is the worst possible sin? We've talked about this before i just remind you, let's get this stuck in our minds. Because it's easy in our culture, we can think of all the kind of the big social sins, sex and all that stuff, right? You know. What is the worst sin? Well, the way to answer that question is ask yourself, what is the first and most important commandment? What is the greatest commandment? It is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. So the worst sin, the greatest sin is to not love. And see, when the light's shining, we love something else. We love ourselves. We love our life as it is. We love what we want to do. And when John talks about the fact that we don't want to come to the light, what that light is exposing first and foremost is not some kind of heinous, gross, social evil that I'm committing. What it's exposing first and foremost is that I don't love God as I should and I would rather not be exposed. I'd rather not have that exposed. I'd rather just turn away from it. To use James's picture, you know, you look in the mirror and you walk away and don't clean your face. <laughs> you look in the mirror, you don't like what you see there, you just walk away because you want to stay as you are. So John, what we're saying this morning now, going back to John the Baptist, he, what was he? What he was was a witness to the light. One of the great witnesses came to make clear who this Jesus is so that all might believe. And he's witnessing to you. He's witnessing to me. Hear and see his witness. The other focus there that we read in those first verses, what he was not. What he was, he was a witness to the light. What he was not is he was not the light itself. Verse 8, just look at it again. He was not the light. The distinguishing mark of John's witness here, of John the Baptist or John the witness, we could call him. The distinguishing mark in the fourth gospel, he must increase, I must decrease. It's not about me. Don't put the focus on me. And John the Apostle, as we begin to read this this gospel, verse 6, introducing this very strategic and important figure in God's redemptive plan. Be clear who he is and who he is not. He is not the light. Some background for a moment will help us to understand this emphasis a little better. If you'll look at the screen for this one, you don't have to turn to it, but Acts chapter 19 Remember what happens in Acts chapter 19. The Apostle Paul arrives at Ephesus, and he discovers something here. And it's very interesting. It happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. By the way, that was our first title, disciple. We weren't called Christians first. We were called disciples first. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no. No. We have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. I don't think that means they were ignorant of the Old Testament testimony to the Holy Spirit. I think that means they hadn't heard what Paul was referring to here. And he said, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. That's as far as they'd gotten. John had called people to be baptized and repent. They had been baptized. Don't know for sure, but at some point they've left Israel They've left Palestine and they've ended up in Ephesus. They never got past the baptism of John in their knowledge of and acquaintance with what was happening with Jesus. So Paul said, John baptized with a baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. And on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them. They began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. So here you have this little pocket of 12, about 12, disciples, But they're really disciples of John the Baptist. That's as far as they have progressed in their understanding of this new moving of God. This is in Ephesus. The Gospel of John was written in Ephesus. The Apostle John spent years in Ephesus. And so, as you read about John the Baptist here in the fourth Gospel... You keep seeing this highlighted. It's not me, it's him. I'm not Christ. I'm not Messiah. I'm not Elijah. We'll come to that in a little bit. We'll look at that. It's always a pointing away from John the Baptist. Why? Because there were pockets of people who had identified themselves with John. We know from other early Christian writing that this went on for some time that you would occasionally find these pockets or groups or camps of John followers. And so part of the intention of the apostle in writing this gospel was to help make clear who the right focus is and where your faith really belongs. There is a propensity among us all. It's human to be drawn to Specific leaders, specific servants of Christ. It's perfectly natural and normal, and it's fine. It's good that you would connect with and identify with a particular, let's say, a particular pastor. Here in our church, we have seven. And it would be perfectly natural and normal and good for you to say, you know, Larry is really my pastor. Because he would be the one who's ministered to you most. You've connected to him. Felt a sense of real input, real shepherding from him. Perfectly good and healthy. Christian, any one of us seven that you might say, that one's really my pastor. You know, I'll tell you something. I, I, that, that brings joy to my heart when I hear that. If somebody were to say, you know, Rich is really my pastor that blesses the socks right off of me. You know why? Because that means we're starting to get it. We're not always thinking of the guy standing up front preaching as the real pastor and the other guys as sort of, you know, laymen who serve on a board. That means we're really starting to function like the body of Christ, and that's glorious. That's what should be happening. It's also perfectly... Natural and normal and fine to identify and to prefer the preaching of some or pastors more than others. Perfectly natural. Perfectly normal. And I'm good with that. I know some of you prefer Sean's preaching to my preaching and I'm perfectly good with that. I've known that forever. I know my preaching does not work for everyone. If it did, this church would be a lot bigger than it is. <laughs> You know why I know that and why I'm good with that? Because not every preacher works for me either. I'm not going to use any names this morning, but let me just tell you something. In my youth and in our youth, big name, very popular, widely known, worldwide known preachers. One in particular, if I mentioned his name, everybody in the room would know who I'm talking about. I just did not happen to enjoy listening to him. It had nothing to do with his theology. It had nothing to do with anything wrong with his ministry. Millions of people around the world listened to and loved and were blessed by his ministry. Who in the world would I be to say, well, I just don't think he's that good of a preacher? That'd be ridiculous to think like that. But just to recognize, I didn't connect. I didn't, you know, it it just wasn't my cup of tea. And why is that? It's because the human race is incredibly diverse. And the body of Christ is incredibly diverse. And in God's design, this is why he intended that there always be a diversity of leadership and there always be a diversity of ministry because no one person, not only physically, is capable of ministering to everybody, but we're all different and we're going to identify with and receive from better and more naturally one than another, and that's the way life is, and it's good, and it's healthy. And I want you to understand that I'm good with that. What is not good is when we allow our identification, our natural identification with certain leaders to divide us. That is not good. When our egos get involved, when we develop a party spirit, when there comes to be this kind of, us and you, me and us and them, spirit, then clearly we're, we're going beyond what is natural and normal and good into what is divisive. Take a minute here, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. You know this probably if you're acquainted with the New Testament. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree. And that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. There is no mandate that we all like the same things, that we all think exactly identically. But there is a mandate that in our diversity and in our differences, we come together in unity. And we work out our differences. Verse 11, for it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. I follow Cephas. Or I follow Christ. Those those were the snooty ones. Come on. We're Jesus. Look, Look at Paul's answer here. Is Christ divided? How many Jesuses have we got? A glorious passage in Ephesians. There is one Lord. As he sets out, begins to talk about the practice of what he's been teaching them, first thing he talks about is we're striving to preserve or maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace because there is only one faith, one Lord, one baptism, one God Father overall. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Now later on, he's going to come back to this in chapter 3. I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. This is really... Once you, once you get what he means by saying, I couldn't speak to you as to spiritual people... How this passage becomes so much more powerful. The Corinthians were the first charismatics in the church. I, I mean that quite seriously. If you study chapters twelve to fourteen, where Paul addresses the whole matter of spiritual gifts and especially their function in the gatherings like this, in the meetings, he uses the term very clearly. Chapter twelve, verse seven manifestations of the Spirit. It's clear that the Corinthians were passionate. They they desperately wanted, when they gathered together, they wanted to see and experience manifestations of the Spirit. And in particular, you see there in that chapter, in those chapters, the gift of tongues was a very prominent gift of what they wanted to experience on a regular basis. They also apparently wanted to see miracles performed. They wanted to see healing, divine, miraculous healing. At the beginning of the book, Paul thanks God that they lack no spiritual gift. He's thankful for their heart for and desire for the Holy Spirit and his ministry and the gifts that he has given to his body. Later on, now in chapters 12 to 14, he's going to correct them, however. He's going to say, What you're doing in practice is not good. Sure, you want to see the power of God very visibly and evidently in your midst. Who would not want that, really? To know and see God work with great power. But he says, What you're doing is not a good thing because. It may be impressive. We might go, wow, the Spirit has shown up if someone were to stand and speak in another language. But if we can't understand it, Paul says it has no value in our gatherings. We can be impressed with that, but that's being impressed in the flesh. That's not really experiencing what God wants. So all this means is the Corinthians have become come to think of themselves as the truly spiritual because we have the Spirit. We have the manifestations of the Spirit. Have you ever seen anything like that in our world? Of course you have. If you've, you've seen Christians that have a kind of, no matter how hard they may at times to try to resist the impulse... Because we're getting these gifts, and we're having these experiences of the Spirit, we're just on a different plane, we're on a different level. We are more spiritual. So think of a congregation of believers here, a body of believers now who are thinking of themselves, we're the ones who are really knowing and experiencing the Holy Spirit, we're the truly spiritual ones, and Paul looks them right in the eyeball and says, I cannot speak to you as spiritual. I have to speak to you as people who are still operating in your sinful nature. In fact, you are acting like babies in Christ. You are immature and fleshly or carnal or whatever word we can use. Operating in the old nature, the sinful nature. He says in verse two, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For, why is he saying this? For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? Literally that last phrase says you're walking according to humanity, not according to the spirit. You're walking like human beings. You know, if you, if you think that through, what do you call a human being who does not have the spirit? You call him the world. You call him a non-Christian, an unbeliever. You are acting like non-Christians. You're, you're operating on a purely human level. He goes on to st- To say it again, verse 4, for when one says, I follow Paul, another says, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God is the one doing the work that happens. If something happens at Crossway Fellowship, it isn't the servant that's causing it to happen. It is God. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. Again, it's not that you're nothing, but it is keeping clear who we are and who we are not. We are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. See, there was, even in the first century, identifying with John, And it's natural. It's normal and it can be perfectly good and fine and healthy that you would connect with a particular leader and feel a sense that if you had a spiritual need, that's the one you would feel most comfortable going to. It's great. But when our identification with a particular leader begins to pull us away from Jesus, begins to divide us and take the focus away from what unites us, Then we have gone too far, and it is time for repentance. And this is the spirit of John now. What, what, What was he? He was a witness to the light. What was he not? He was not the light. And he kept saying that and kept emphasizing that over and over again. He kept shifting people away from himself. He kept looking away from himself. He kept seeking to get people to take their eyes off of him and look to Christ. Let's go back to the Gospel of John now. Next reference to to John in the Gospel of John is verse 15. Chapter 1, verse 15. John bore witness about him, Jesus, and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. John is always pointing away from Jesus. He must increase. Then we drop down to 19. The prologue, the introduction of the book, ends at verse 18. very first thing now after the introduction is he's going to talk about John, and we're going to see this exact same theme running throughout. And this is the testimony of John, verse 19, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him. Just a note here, you see here's an indication of where the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem. Well, the, the priests and Levites are Jewish, It doesn't mean the Jews. It means the Sanhedrin, the authority, the the council, the leadership of the nation. Sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Messiah. I am not. I am not important for us to sometimes remember, and it can be very subtle. It can be very, very subtle, but we can start to think and act as though we're the savior of people. They need us. I must because, you know, it takes a huge load off of a pastor's shoulders. Speak to my fellow brothers for a moment here. If you ever start to carry that load too heavy, that it all rides on you. Just tell yourself, I am not the Savior of anyone. <laughs> Jesus is our Savior. I am not the Christ. And they asked him, well, what then? Verse 21, are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? I am not. Well, what's up with them asking him if he's Elijah? You think, just pick some random dude out of the Old Testament. Who are you? <laughs> you know? Who are you? Are you like Jeremiah no no why Elijah well Elijah was predicted to come Malachi ends with this word about Elijah behold I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes See, that's what, that's what they would have identified when John the Baptist is there and he's preaching and he's saying, repent, be baptized, because the kingdom of God is at hand. They're thinking, they read Malachi, they're thinking the great and awesome day of the Lord is coming now. That mean, means Elijah's going to show up, as Malachi said. And so they're wondering, John, are you this guy? Are you the fulfillment of Malachi? Malachi will, or not Malachi, Elijah will come and turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Are you, are you the fulfillment of this? What about the prophet? Are you the prophet? What do you mean the prophet? Moses is the source of the prophecy or the prediction that God is going to send another prophet Deuteronomy 18, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. That is key. A prophet like me. He sent lots of prophets. He sent Isaiah and Jeremiah and and Daniel and so forth and so on. But who is this prophet like me? What is he referring to? He's going to send a prophet like me. From among you, from your brothers, it is to him you shall listen. Well, to really get what he's saying here, you've got to understand and think about and realize the role and the the position of Moses in the life and history of Israel. Who was Moses? Moses is, first of all, their redeemer. He led them out of captivity, out of Egypt. And Moses is their lawgiver. He gave them the word of God, the law of Moses. He was also uniquely a prophet. If you read back in the Pentateuch about Moses, you will see that he is distinguished from every other prophet of God. Just a couple of examples of this. Deuteronomy 34. There has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. What that's referring to is that God communicated and related with Moses uniquely in a way he did not relate to any other prophet ever. None like him for all the signs and the wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land and for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. You may recall later on as they've left Egypt and, and Miriam, his sister, and Aaron, Uh, His brother, they kind of rise up against him. They're they're getting a little uppity and rebellious against Moses. They're not satisfied with his leadership, and uh, God calls them to task here. Verse 6 of Numbers 12. Hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream, not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth clearly and not in riddles. And he beholds the form of of the Lord, of Yahweh. Why then were you not afraid to speak against him? Moses stands unique. He's still Moses. He's not God, but he stands unique. And so Moses is saying in Deuteronomy 18, the Lord is going to send another prophet like me. And so they're wondering as they send to John the Baptist, are you this prophet that Moses talked about? And he says no to both of them. I'm not these people. I'm not Messiah. I'm not Elijah. I'm not the prophet. Well, then who are you? He says, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. I am the fulfillment of Isaiah. That's a remarkable claim. They go on here, verse 25 says, they asked him, then why are you baptizing if you're neither Messiah, Elijah, or the prophet? Notice how John responds. He doesn't really defend his right to baptize. He doesn't really deal with their question directly. But now we're coming back to our main theme here. He says, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, this, here it is again, one of these grand, glorious, spiritual statements, truth that we just ought to take to heart and chew on, meditate on, let it seep and soak deeply into our, our hearts. He who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. He had a right estimation of who he was. And who he was not. Verse 29 goes on here. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him. And he said, behold the Lamb of God. This is God's offering for sin. No humans, no person bringing an animal to the temple... This is the one God has sent. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him. It's possible that they lived far enough apart that they had not met. They were relatives. They were probably cousins. I I incline to think that they knew each other as cousins, but John did not know who Jesus really was until the baptism. I incline to that point of view, but either way you go. John says, I didn't know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and I have been borne witness that this is the Son of God. Now I know who my cousin is. I wonder if I'm correct, if they knew each other as cousins. And there in the water, you remember in other accounts we know John, John's thinking, I don't need to baptize you, so maybe that's another way to look at it, but I'm just, I'm just, I'm visualizing John suddenly coming to a realization. Cousin Josh is the son of God. Now look at verse 35, the next day again John was standing with two of his disciples And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say, and they followed Jesus. John did not cling to his followers. A good lesson for for me. To not cling to those that I would like to consider. Not my followers per se, but those. I have a ministry and I can get clingy sometimes as a leader ready to release, ready to send, ready to part with those that God has other purpose for because who do they belong to? They belong to him, not to me. Well, let's look at one other passage today in John chapter 3. Actually, we'll read just a, a bit from John 10 as well. We're, we're, we're looking at John and the, the John the Baptist in the fourth gospel this morning. And what we're seeing here is this consistent theme of him pointing away from himself and pointing us to Jesus. He was a witness, not the light itself. Verse 22 of chapter 3, after this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside. It tells us here, basically, Jesus went out and they're gonna do some baptizing there and John is also baptizing there. And so in verse 25, a little bit of a discussion gets going among John's followers. You know, this has got to stroke your ego. It's got to feel good as a leader. Your followers are having a, having a discussion and they're kind of jealous for you. They're jealous for your, you know, your success or your notoriety or your following. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. Take that to heart as well. You long for a larger ministry. You look at another leader and their ministry is larger. God gives what he gives. Maturity is to learn to rejoice in that. You know, sometimes we can, we can see another church being planted in our area. Do you ever have, I don't know if you do, maybe this is a pastor issue, (laughs) maybe you don't do this, but you kind of, you're driving down the street and you see a little, maybe a sandwich board sign, such and such a church, you look over there, ah, church plan. Do you have feelings of, eh, more competition in the neighborhood? You know what? This metropolitan area has enough unbelievers that we could use all the churches we can get. We are on the same team. And the captain of this team is not any pastor. The captain of this team is Jesus. Verse 28, John speaking here, you yourself bear me witness that I said I am not the Messiah, but I've been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom, the friend of the bridegroom. This is the best man in our terminology. You know, the best man doesn't need to be jealous. I suppose that might happen sometimes, but John is not a jealous best man. He's thrilled for his buddy who's marrying his dream girl. John is thrilled for Jesus as he is realizing his glory and his kingdom. Look at what it says. Verse 29, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom, the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He's saying this to the fact that people are leaving him and going to Jesus. And many people aren't even coming to John to be baptized. They're going straight to Jesus to be baptized. Now my joy is complete. He, there it is, There's our quote right there. He must increase, but I must decrease. If you find it difficult to have joy at the visible success of another ministry, ask God to change your heart. Because every time you see the visible success of another ministry, you should say, The kingdom of God is advancing. One last verse here quickly. John 10, verse 40. He went away across, again across the Jordan. This is John 10. To the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. This, this is one of the last words we have about John in the gospel here. And what is the note of it? The note of it is we're seeing the fruit of John's ministry. We're seeing the end result. As Jesus comes in an area where John has come before him, they say, wow, John was telling the truth. And they believe in Jesus. John was not the light. He was a witness to the light that all might believe. What does Acts chapter 1 tell us as we conclude this morning? What are we? We are all witnesses. You are my witnesses. Jerusalem, Judea, uttermost parts of the world. We are witnesses. What a glorious privilege that we are witnesses. But let's always remind ourselves, we're not the light. He must increase. We must decrease.